Hi there, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Smashing the Ceiling with me, Naomi Mella. On this podcast, we love to showcase the lives of women who have achieved amazing things in their careers, those who've got a really cool or unusual job, and some who have just had a really interesting life. Each week, I sit down with one woman to dig a little deeper into the how of it all. How did they get where they are? How did they pick themselves up when things didn't go right? And how their mentors, mistakes and motivations have led them to achieve the things they have. We'll start with a bit of honesty on my part to open this week's show. Getting the podcast out here at the moment has been a bit of a challenge on a weekly basis right now as work is proving very busy. I'm away a lot with my job and I barely have time to say hello to my husband, let alone do much else. I'm quite knackered most of the time. But I love this podcast and I get such a buzz from talking to the women we feature getting feedback from people who say that they've enjoyed it or it's been useful for them. And I'm just feeling all the more determined to continue to bring you more amazing women every Sunday. So keep listening because we're keeping on going. And I can't wait to bring you the upcoming episodes over the next few weeks. This week's guest, Kate Healy, has, she says, always been interested in money how people use it, why some people squander it, why others are obsessed with it, and how some people use a little to produce a lot. Money still carries a stigma, a taboo around it, that Kate would love to help break down and to encourage more women to take responsibility for their finances, to understand money and what they can do with it, and to promote a career in finance as being a worthwhile and interesting one. Kate started out as a fund accountant and has progressed through various areas of the financial world, including a stint as a vice president at Merrill Lynch, but her day job is now on the marketing side of the financial sector. As Managing Director of Institutional Marketing for TD Ameritrade, she works to encourage others into a career in finance and financial advising. Kate also leads the Women's Leadership Initiative for TDA, which assists the professional development of women and encourages female investors. She's also passionate about diversity and recognises the need to recruit millennials, as most people involved in finance, particularly financial advisors, are often pretty old and pretty male. If you've never thought about a career as a financial advisor, then this is a pretty good introduction. There are many upsides that aren't often talked about, and Kate and I discuss a lot about the financial world in this interview. We started by talking about her early life, as usual, and what she wanted to be when she grew up. When I was very little, I wanted to actually be a nurse. Um, I loved like Clara Barton and all those stories of Florence Nightingale and all of those things, and so I used to you know, throw my dolls out of the tree and then fix them up and bandage them and um, <laughs> all those crazy things. And then I, I realized that I would have to work on holidays and weekends. And I was very young and I was like, wait, I would have to work Christmas. Oh, I don't know. About <laughs> Nobody this. wants so to do I, that. <laughs> exactly. So I thought, well, maybe this isn't the right career for me. But um, I've always been interested in in money and just how people think about money, the behavioral aspect of it. I was always fascinated by how people decided to spend their money or to not spend their money to save it or just the way in which people use it. I I view money very much as a tool. Um, And so I'm just always fascinated by what people do with that tool or how they make that tool bigger or what, what, what do they use it for? So that's always been a a fascination for me. And were you quite entrepreneurial at a young age? Were you a good saver and stuff when you were growing up? I mean, some of it was forced. My parents were very good savers. So we got, you know, a a very modest allowance um, that would go to, you know, some savings, some spending and some church. But I would, um, you know, 
I also decided what I liked and what I didn't like. And, and if, you know, my parents said to me, well, that's something you'll have to pay for on your own. I was like, all right, well, I'm going to get a job. So I was, you know, a mother's helper when I was, you know, I guess around nine is when I started. I was, I had a paper route. I used to babysit, like not the mothers would be home. I would just be helping them out if they had a lot of kids and I'd watch one or two of them while they took care of the others or just anything so I could get extra money so I could buy or get or, or do something more than maybe, you know, my parents had allotted to me, um, in the, in the budgeting. So, yeah. So I guess I was, I didn't think of it as an entrepreneur. I didn't start a business, but I was certainly, um, you know, I looked at money as, um, the power to get me what I wanted or to, to be able to let me do things that maybe the rest of my brothers and sisters didn't really care about. Gosh, you sound like the one that was, uh, definitely had a head screwed on the right way when you were growing up. <laughs> <laughs> I was such a terrible dreamer. I was, I've always been rubbish at that kind of thing. My brother is like an absolute entrepreneur. You know, he was selling my mom's brownies at school when we were children and all that kind of oh, thing. Oh, see, know? that's smart. I wouldn't have been that smart. I, mean, I did stuff that was already established. My sisters were already babysitters. So I would be like, oh, when you can't do it, I'll take your job. And actually, you know, it's interesting. And my brothers and I joke about this, but my first job at a paper route was filling in for them. They had the paper route. And I would do it during the week. But what I didn't realize until later was that they were doing it on the weekends, which is when you collected the money and the tips. <laughs> and so I wasn't, oh, I was not gaining the tips. I was getting a very, very low flat fee that my mother had negotiated with them for me. Oh, and okay. uh, so it was, it was an early lesson of, oh, I'm going to negotiate myself now. Thank you very much. How did you then kind of progress through school and, and into your early career in finance? And how did you make that choice as you were getting a little bit older, Kate? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, school was was just regular. We had a couple of, um, I took some accounting classes and finance classes in high school. Um, and then just really, you know, still knew that I loved money. I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do yet, but I knew I wanted to be in the business world, whatever that was. Um, and so when I went to college, I studied economics and finance with um, like a, a minor in accounting. Um, so for four years in college, that's what I was studying. And, you know, I, I started to work in a bank. I was a bank teller when I was, um, I guess, just out of high school while I was um, going to college. I worked part time as a bank teller. Um, and that really, you know, obviously the money is right there in front of you. But even then, I didn't look at it as, you know, I'd have all this money in my jaw at the bank and it it wasn't like it was real, like that was mine. It was just like, oh, here's a product. Someone's going to give me a check and I'm going to give them this money and they're going to go buy a house or buy a car or buy groceries with it or, or go to school with it. It was just a, it was just fascinating to see, you know, just all the different types of people and everyone uses money and how do they use that? And what do they use it for? So I was a, a bank teller for a couple of years. And then um, while still in school, I also took a job in an accounting firm um, to just kind of learn that piece of the business a little bit. And then, you know, really I didn't have a, a, a set, you know, I knew I wanted to be in some kind of finance role. I didn't know exactly what that is because when you're in high school and college, you have no idea. My father had been an accountant at a large corporation. So I knew that existed. I knew I didn't want to do exactly what he was doing. Um, but I didn't really know all the other aspects of what could be in finance. So I, I got a job. I got a job offer. I interviewed. There was a um, a job fair, and I went to it, and I got this role. And I was a mutual fund accountant, 
And I really didn't know what that was, but I got the job and I was very excited. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> and, and actually at the time they just called it fund accountant. So I, I used to kid around and say, I'm a fun accountant. And I dropped the D <laughs> from the fund. And I met a friend of mine who was a year older than me. He had graduated before me. And he, and I said, what are you doing now? And he told me, he said, I'm a fund accountant. I'm like, oh, I just got that job. What is it? And so he, you know, told me about it. And really it was just accounting for the mutual funds. Um, and so figuring out pricing the share today, this job would not exist. It would be totally done by computers. But at the time, um, you know, every day when the markets closed, we would get a download of the prices and we would price out all the different shares of everything in the, that made up the mutual fund and then come up with the, what the net asset value was. So it was an interesting job because you got to see something like this is real life. Like people are buying and selling these things based on the price that we're calculating. Mm -hmm. So it was interesting that my first job actually you know, it wasn't public facing, but I got to see how what I did affected real people. In the general public. So that yeah. was cool. That yeah. Cool. And I just, just uh, interested in picking up something you said there, Kate, which was about learning about finance at school. Because in this country, I've had this conversation with um, a couple of friends recently about um, there's, you know, women and money. And there's very little taught in school in the UK about managing finances and what you know, about pensions or stocks and shares, or for example, mm -hmm. I have no idea what a mutual fund is that you've just mentioned, you know, and, <laughs> you know, I know how to save into a, into a savings account, but I think a lot of people feel quite naive about money. And it's one of the things that makes it into a bit of a taboo for people because they don't, it's a bit of a whole kind of a whole world that they just feel they don't really know about. I'm interested in whether everybody gets education about finance and money in the US. Is that something that is quite well taught, do you think, to young no, people over there? It's it's not taught at all. I honestly would not. I, I sought it out because my father was an accountant. So I thought, all right, I'll take an accounting class, economics, because it, that to me was finance. We didn't have a finance class, so I took economics. That was the closest thing. Um, but no, it, it's not taught. So I will say since 2008, since the financial crisis, um, it's been mandated in 17 of the 50 states that financial literacy, financial education needs to be taught in high school before graduation. But it's uh, the challenge is there's no standard curriculum. So you may have a class where you just learn how to write checks and budget, and that's good. But you might have a class where I know some of my families had a class that was really intense and it was six months twice in your high school career. And you learn like more about the decision making, not just how to do something, but how to make that decision of is it worth it to spend all your money on a really good college when you might go into debt versus maybe you go to a community college that's less expensive for the first two years when you really probably don't know what you want to be anyway. And all the classes are the same versus you know, do you really like dogs? Do you know how expensive it is to feed a dog, to take them to the vet? Like that kind of stuff that really makes you think about money and the decisions that you're making. There is, there is not enough financial education at all in America. And I think it's interesting. I have some friends from, from England and from Ireland. And, and one of the things they talk about is that, and I don't know if this is true. This is what they told me is that you do talk about money more, but here in America, we don't, my friends, I don't know how much they make. They don't know how much I make. We don't talk about it. It's like a taboo subject. We can talk about politics and other things. Well, we shouldn't, but we do. But we can't, we don't talk about money. So it's a very, um, like a secret. And I think that's been a lot of the issues with people, why they don't go into the business because it's scary. They don't know what it is. It's money and it's just, it's out there, but people don't understand it. 
um, I was lucky just because that in my home, I got more exposure to it. Mm. And why do you think that is, Kate? Because I'm really intrigued. You, you mentioned when we were just opening about the psychology, you know, being interested in the psychology of money. What, what do you, do you have a, an opinion on why money is so taboo? I mean, I think you're right. I think over here, we don't talk about money much. And, you know, I've talked to quite a few of my girlfriends about how much we earn. And it's been very liberating and and a great leverage for some people to request pay rises and and it, but I'm really interested in in your opinion on the kind of psychology of that side of things it's interesting I think that people assume a different value to money that the more that you have the more successful you are and I don't think that's necessarily true I know many people who do more and and have more it seems than people without money and they have less. And that's not necessarily true, but I think people just um, place that value on it. And so they're afraid to say, well, if I only make this much money, am I worth less as a person, which is not true at all. And I, you know, I often, when people say to me, well, so-and-so has this car, or this house. And I say, you have no idea their situation that could all be financed. It could be inherited. And, and people, you know, they spend on what they value most. Um, maybe they value fast cars and that's why they buy them. Maybe they value a big house or, or maybe they value travel. And so they live in a smaller house and drive an older car, but go on these fantastic trips because that's, what's important to them. You know, it's, it's hard to judge, but for, for whatever reason, um, there's just a discomfort. I think people assume things about someone based on money. And so it's a very, very taboo subject here. So when you started out in your career, Kate, um, presumably at that stage, there were not many women around in the sector you went into. Like, did you have many women in your office and how did you find your transition into early work? See, that's the scary part is there actually were a lot of women. When you start out in this business, you know, at a, at a lower level job, you turn around and it's women and men. It was, I mean, in my mind, it seemed half and half. Maybe it wasn't, but there were I graduated college and turned around and there were five other women that had graduated same time as me. We were all working together in the same office with, you know, five other men. Uh, it wasn't, it, there were women in it. So women do come into the industry. That's the part that's even worse is that they come in, but they don't stay. And that's the challenge. I mean, and I have to say, you know, as somebody who has, um, never really been inside a trading center or you know I, I don't come from any kind of banking or city background but you know that kind of movie sort of picture of the trading floor of being the kind of last <laughs> bastion of testosterone is um, is quite well held um yes. you know is is that have you seen a change in that over your career and that, you know do you think women are starting to realize that for all of the kind of banter as it were that 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 is a place they can go yeah I mean it's so different when I started the trading floor was just what you saw in the movies it was all male very few women they smoked on the floor they cursed on the floor it was just it was crazy <laughs> um that's changed right you can't smoke anymore so no one smokes on the floor quite frankly most trading is all done electronically now so there really aren't even trading floors anywhere when you go there there are the few people that are on the floor have a different role um, they're just watching the markets. They're not really doing the trading. So that, that whole world has changed. Um, but, and more women have gotten into it. Um, it's really about democratizing it, right? When you think about it used to cost, um, hundreds of dollars to trade 
and normal people didn't have that money. Normal people really didn't have any um, exposure to the stock markets unless they were very wealthy because you just couldn't afford to go to a, a financial person to make that transaction. And then as um, things got more democratized and trading costs came down, the company I work for, TD Ameritrade, was one of the um, you know, pioneers in that. They, they invented um, phone trading. 40 years ago after we were deregulated and all of a sudden it didn't cost $100 for a trade anymore. I mean, now trades are under $10 everywhere. It's That cost has gone away, so it's made it more democratized. Um, so it has become different. It's still predominantly male. Um, men, it's, there, there's, um, you know, there's, there's been studies on, you know, the differences between male traders and women traders and um, just, you know, who's better at it. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of different things um, that come out of it. There are some studies that say that women are better traders, partly because they look for a more, more long-term view. They're more likely to buy and hold and hold on to something when there's volatility in the market. They don't necessarily react. Um, there are studies about the difference between men and women's brains. And sometimes brains are, you know, activated by the volatility in a market, which may cause um, a man to trade more than perhaps a woman would. And that Gosh. not just the trading, but then what the trading costs that get incurred there and what does that do to the return over time? And are they missing out on the market? So there's a ton of, of different reasons. There's there's more work that needs to be done from the study of that perspective, because quite frankly, there's still not enough women who are doing the trading to get a great, um, you know, a great research out of it. But but that's changing every day. Mm -hmm. And I guess the perception is that, you know, as a woman, that the hours are not very family friendly. They're not very flexible. You know, if you have to be, so my friends who work in trading in London, they are there at 7am. And, you know, it's, it's kind of seen as quite a, an inflexible sort of macho, yeah. macho culture, which has maybe lagged a little bit behind other areas of the corporate sector in making themselves a bit more accessible um, to people who might want to have a slightly more flexible career, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I think that's very true, right? They're the trading hours, the market is open from a certain time to a certain time. And that's, you know, when you have to be there. So that does make it um, less flexible. But as the markets are so open now, I mean, we trade 24-7, 24-5 at TD Ameritrade. There are certain ETFs and funds you can actually trade overnight. Um, that so it's not so much about being at the market, but I think that's something that that all of the corporations are starting to deal with is how to be how to understand that seeing someone sitting at a desk or sitting at a trading station isn't necessarily an indication of how productive they are. <laughs> People can be just as productive if they're working from home. I know I you know I used to manage a, a large workforce of of predominantly women. Um, many of them were working moms and, and I let them work from home. As I say, it's why God made laptops. <laughs> if you've got to take the kids to school and then come and sit in an hour and a half of traffic to get to work and then leave to go get the kids, it's not worth, why are you doing all that when you can Skype and talk on the phone and, you know, I am people and, um, and, and many of our, the people that we work with aren't in this office anyway, they're all over the country. So there's not always necessarily a need to be in one place uh, I think that's, you know, that's making the change, but it, it's, it's catching up to making people understand it's okay for you to not be sitting at a desk every day. That doesn't mean work isn't getting done. You and I are in two different countries. It's what, nine o'clock at night where you are, 930. 
um, you know, you're working, uh, I'm working, we're being productive. It doesn't have to be, you know, I'm in the office today. I could have just as easily been working out of my home office. Um, so it's getting people used to that. And I think that's, you know, that, that change is slowly starting to happen. I just think there's a lot more to do. And I think people, and that's, that's a, um, that's something that while managers might not think it can happen yet, it does, um, it does push away the next generations of women and men who want more flexibility. They're used to it. If we have all these devices, why do we need to be in an office? Yeah, sure, sure. And now um, your role with TD Ameritrade is you're part of the um, Women's Leadership Initiative and kind of increasing diversity within the organization as a whole. Can you just tell us a little bit about what you do now, Kate, and how you got to that point through your career? Sure. So, you know, I, I came to TD Ameritrade a little over 10 years ago, and um, I was working in marketing for the financial advisor segment. So we, our clients, um, we have two sides of the business. The side I work on, our clients are registered investment advisors. So they provide financial planning advice to, um, to Americans. We, um, so I, as I was doing that, we were also starting to realize that there was just a lack of women in this business. And it's something that is, as you, we talked about before, right? When I started in this business, there were women there. It's as my I rose up my career where I really I turned around and I noticed that they were all gone. They had left. Some of them went and had babies and never came back. Some of them just left the firms that women were leaving financial services. And I thought, what's going on? Why? Why are people leaving? Why am I still here? Is there something wrong with me or them or the <laughs> industry? Or is it a combination of all of that? And so it was really just trying to figure out why we weren't attracting people to stay to this business. And they weren't coming into it. We weren't seeing, you know, an influx. So on the, like the financial advisors that I work with, only 13% of them are women. Okay. And it's terrible because it's an amazing job. It offers you flexibility. It offers you a great living and you're helping people with their finances. So it's fulfilling. And so we started to think about that and, and, we said, we, we need to figure this out. And so we started the women's initiative back then in 2009, but for probably eight years or so, I was doing it on the side of my desk. So I was doing, you know, running marketing full-time, but also saying, Hey, how do we get more women? How do we get more diversity? How do we get more millennials? Because also young people weren't joining the business to the extent we needed them um, because they weren't attracted to it. That's interesting. Yeah. And scary. It's, so so we said, look, let's start this. We call it our RA Next Gen Initiative. And it's really around how do we, it, it's kind of a three-pronged approach. So it's how do we get more women into this business? How do we get more millennials? And how do we get more diversity into the business? But it's also how do we make advisors understand why it's so important to hire them and to train them, but also to how, do they, how important it is for them to work with them as clients. Because that was the challenge, too. So we, we kind of led with the business case when we started this to say, look, William, women control trillions of dollars in the economy. If you are not working with women or if you're working with a couple and you're only talking to the man, you're going to lose that account when he passes away. Because hmm. statistically, he's going to go first or they're going to get divorced. And she's not going to work with you if she doesn't have a relationship with you. So you've got all this money that is on at risk if you are not working with both men and women and understanding how to work with them. And then also you, you know, in this, in this country over the next decade, a hundred thousand advisors are expected to retire. So we're going to have a shortage of financial advisors to provide financial help 
to Americans. So one way to do that is to obviously bring more people into this industry. Um, the, the industry has been growing. Um, it's really maturing over the past 25 years or so. And there's now college degree programs. It's been interesting to, to watch the growth of that. And so over the last 10 years, as we've been doing this, advisors, you know, if it's not hurting them, they don't want to make the change, right? If it, that's true with anybody, right? If they're not being harmed by something, they might not necessarily do what they know could be better for them, but they just don't get around to it. So about two years ago, we decided to formalize this position and I moved out of marketing and said, all right, we're starting this new role. It's called Generation Next. And to me, the next generation is everyone who's not here today. So it's women, it's young people, it's diversity. We have a, a terrible lack of diversity in this industry because there's such misperceptions about what all of finance is about, what financial planning, which is where I concentrate, is. Um, and so everyone thinks it's these Wolf of Wall Street, these kinds of movies that they see, and that's not that's not what it is at all. Most of the our clients work with everyday families, just helping them save for retirement, save for college, saved for leaving money to the next generation or giving to charity um, and, or running small businesses. So it's, it's really a lot of what we do is to try to um, change the perception, provide more exposure to students and to people who are thinking about what their career should be, and then helping advisors understand why and when they should hire this next generation um, and, and you know, how they can work with them to help them become the new financial advisors. I'm just really interested, Kate, as well, about the impact of the financial crisis on recruitment to the financial services industry, because, um, you know, I think certainly, again, I'm speaking from personal experience, I'm 34 years old, and the crash happened when I was sort of in my early mid 20s, at a time when a lot of my friends were getting jobs. And not only were there not really any jobs available, but banking and financial services, be that trading or financial advising, was really negatively viewed, certainly in, in London, as people being greedy and dishonest. And, and the fact that we'd had this international crisis as a result of dodgy dealings of, you know, people who were who were <laughs> kind of behaving in a somewhat underhand fashion, which clearly was a small, very small minority of people. But have you found that it has been an uphill struggle recruiting millennials because they have a negative view of the industry? Or do you think it's more that they just don't know that those opportunities exist for them? It's a little bit of both. And what's interesting, so they do have a negative view because many of them, you know, the younger millennials, they might not have been affected. They might have still been in school, but they saw their parents become affected. They saw their parents lose their 401k holdings or lose the house. Um, or, you know, something bad happened to them or their family. So it's interesting. It did it was, it's, it's twofold. So for some people, they're like, oh, these financial people, it's, you know, they're underhanded. They're, you know, they do, they don't respect us. Um, they don't know everything about us, but they're like, no, that's not something I want to work in. But then there's a, another subset of people who saw the crisis and saw how people got hurt and said, I want it. I don't want that to happen to anyone in my family again. I want us to be better prepared. And so they're actually, a lot of people that are entering the profession now are folks who saw their family members or their neighbors get affected negatively by the crisis and are saying, no, I want to help people. You know, it's interesting um, when we talk about the career, and I, I mentioned that there's a financial degree program now, um, we also tell advisors when 
there's not enough people in those degree programs because it's fairly new. So there's not enough graduating every year to fill the need that we have. And I said, you can teach them the finance part. Look for people who are going to school to help people, people who are going to become teachers, psychologists, social workers, sociologists. They want to help people. They don't know our career exists, but once you tell them about it and they realize they can help people live up, you know, helping people with their financial freedom is helping them with their whole life. So by helping these people with their lives, they can also have this great career that has a ton of flexibility and you make a good living at it. So introducing it to it. So yeah, there is that little bit of people say, no, I'm not coming here. But then there's that really great group of people that are saying, I don't, this is terrible. This shouldn't have happened because we didn't know enough about our finances. Maybe we had too much money in company stock or we didn't have enough savings to hold us over. Let's help people to do that budgeting. And it's really, it's really helped change somewhat um, how some of our, our service models are offered to clients. I'm not sure if you've seen the film The Big Short. If you haven't, it's pretty good. But it exposed a lot of the practices around Wall Street and the financial markets by a small number of people that led to the downfall of the American financial system in 2008. And the film gives a warning at the end about the future behavior of those at the sharp end, continuing to have a significant impact on the lives of ordinary people, investing their money in stocks and shares, pension funds and bonds. I asked Kate whether she thought that the ethics surrounding investment had changed and whether there had been a seismic shift in the transparency surrounding the world of finance since the crash. Yeah, I think I think transparency, the the change in transparency, even since I've been in this industry for a little over 30 years, and it's just amazing to me to see the difference in transparency in that time. And as with everything in the world, it's becoming faster and faster, right? You can watch financial television all day long and see every stock price. They talk to the people. If you listen to earnings calls, you're actually listening to the management of the company. Um, with the birth of exchange-traded funds, um, that's where you know people are looking at what's the expense ratio that you're paying for this fund. So you're, there's be- become more of a democratization of investing, so the transparency around how much are you paying to people to do this? You know, we always say, if you're going to hire a financial advisor, the first thing you should do is ask them how they get paid, because then you'll know what side of the table they're sitting on. Um, you know, it's they should get paid, right? They're providing a service, but you want to make sure they're not getting paid astronomically for, for the work that they're doing. And so it's very important, but there is so much more transparency. And I think that um, is only, only f- better for all investors, all people who are trying to invest um, in helping them understand, you know, what they're paying for, why they're paying for it. And, you know, again, you want to, you, you need to pay for these services, but there's, um, there's a lot more insight into what you're paying for. So it allows you to be a more informed consumer. So there still are expensive investments, but there are less expensive investments. And so, you know, you can, as a consumer, look to them and say, well, I don't need to pay for the more expensive one when I can buy purchase the less expensive one. Um, and, and so I think they're doing more of that. And just in terms of um, just rolling back to the Women's Leadership Initiative, what sort of methods are you using to try and boost women into positions of leadership within the industry? Have you Are you looking for quotas or for blind applications or how are you, how are you pushing that agenda, Kate? So it's interesting. So there's a, a lot of different way, things that we're doing. One is the visibility of it. So some of the initiatives that we work on, and I work with some with um, things at TD Ameritrade, but I also work as part of some industry consortiums. So 
Um, I sit on a couple of boards where we really focus on telling the story of successful financial advisors who are women, who are young, who are people of color, so that people can see, right? If you don't, we say, I have this saying that if you, you, um, you can't be what you don't see. So if you don't know that's something, right, that, that you could be, you would never think of it. And so we're trying to tell the story more, show that day in the life of someone who has this job where you can picture yourself and say, oh, I could do that. Let me learn more about it. Um, also mentoring. Mentoring is huge. Making sure that there are enough people, and it doesn't just have to be women. Men can mentor women. Women can mentor men. It's it's just getting someone to tell that story and to really help you understand and help you through that journey. Um, and there'll be different people at different times. You know, you don't need to have one mentor your whole career. You need to be able to get information from people or, or look to ask people for help to find out what you can do. Um, but so... Um, more mentoring programs in place. We don't have quotas right now, um, but I warn everyone that they're probably coming and everyone needs to just pay attention. We'd rather do this on our own than have it mandated. Um, but there's there's so much that each of us can do individually. So, you know, go out and talk to the next generation, talk to the boys clubs and the girls clubs and the Girl Scouts and the students. If your child goes to school, go to their career day and talk about what you do. Um, make sure that, um, that your clients' children know what you do. Some of our advisors actually do special sessions for the kids of their clients and teach them budgeting and things like that. It helps them connect with that next generation, but it also raises that visibility. Because I think that's one of our biggest challenges is the the visibility that this career exists. And then if you know that it exists, overcoming any perceptions that that um, folks may have about what this is, and especially with women, that there is this flexibility um, and that you can, I mean, women can start, they can become financial advisors and actually start their own business. And so they can have all the flexibility they want. They can be their own bosses. Um, so really doing a lot around telling those stories and then trying to tell the story to the people that influence, as I mentioned, the people that influence you on your career. So not just the the leaders of, of organizations, but actually going in and talking to guidance counselors in the schools, the people that help students choose their college and their college major. So really trying to focus on those. And um, you just alluded to mentoring programs there. Have you had any particular mentors in your career, Kate? Yeah, I would say, you know, again, I, I think it's important to have mentors at all different points of your career. Sometimes I call them situational mentors. They might just help you through a, a certain period of time. But you know, over my, the course of my career, I've learned probably three really important lessons from mentors. Um, and one is you have to ask. Hmm. You have to ask. You have to ask for the job. You have to ask for the money. You have to ask to get a seat at the table. And it's okay to ask. I think sometimes as women, we're a little more, um, we pull back a little bit more. Um, so I've worked with some great leaders, men and women, and they've kind of pushed me to say, you know, I remember asking a uh, um, a mentor once about a role. And he's like, just ask, just ask. I mean, what's the worst that can happen? And he was absolutely right. What they could say, no, that didn't mean it was okay. No, not now. Or no, not this time. But it really, you know, it, it helped to, to push me. Um, and then I also had mentors who actually introduced me, you know, your last podcast on negotiation. I haven't had a chance to listen to it yet, but I'm going to, because that's really important. Um, and it's because so much of it is also we discussed how we don't discuss finances. It's not knowing. So I had a, a great boss who sat down with me and, you know, he didn't tell me how much money people were making, but he explained how compensation worked at different levels and 
where there's salary, where there's bonuses and where there's deferred compensation. And maybe there's all these different things that I just had no idea about. I didn't even know they existed. I just always thought, well, every year you go in, you get a raise and you make more money and that's how it works. And, and that's not always how it works. And so it was, it was just really great to have someone sit down to me and explain to me all the different ways compensation could occur. That was really eye opening. Um, and then finally you, you want someone who's going to push you because especially as women, we write ourselves out of roles, promotions, things where we don't think we're ready for it because we didn't check the box on all 10 things they asked for. When in reality, if someone's pushing you towards it, you can do it. Um, and so I've had some great people who have just really pushed me into roles. I wasn't sure that I was ready for, but they were sure I was ready for it. And so I think it's important to listen to people and then also to turn around and pay that forward by by reaching down and picking people up when they don't think they're ready. I think it's really important. That's really good. And um, have you, I always ask people about um, any mistakes in their career, like has anything happened that you've really learned from or is there anything that you would have done differently with hindsight, Kane? Yeah, I, I think, you know, the thing that I think we're all afraid of as people is to leave a place. We don't want to leave a paycheck. I think everyone gets so married to the steady paycheck that you become fearful. And I think that holds us back. I think don't stay too long. If you're in a role where you're not having fun or you're not respected, then it's not the place for you. It's very important to make sure your values align with the values of the company or your boss, or the people that you're working for. And I've been in situations where it didn't, and I was miserable. And then all I had to do was quit my job and find a new one. And I was happy again. And so I think the power of that really knowing yourself, there are a ton of places and they're just, they're not all going to be right for you, but it's okay to move on. So just give yourself that permission. And um, what, what motivates you most about your career, Kate? Like what gets you up in the morning and keeps you excited about doing what you're doing? I think helping people understand that power of money, really how they can use it as a tool. Um, and then just the excitement over the next generation. I, I get to spend so much time with people who are in college age up until, you know, folks who are in their career, but they're still in their first five, 10, 15 years of their career. And when I look at them and I see how they're trying to change the world, it's, it's so motivating to me. It's really fantastic. I, you know, I, there's so much news in the world where you think, Oh, we're in a terrible place. This world's going to fall apart. And then I, I think about the people I work with. I'm like, no, you know what? We're okay. There's a really good crop of people coming. We're okay. It's people are easy. It's easy for people to be critical about millennials, but there's a lot of people who want to make good changes to the world coming up, isn't there? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Cool. And is there anything else that you would like to discuss, promote, or talk about, Kate? Like, is there anything you had on your list of pertinent things that you were going to say? <laughs> I think just you know, I love what you're doing, Naomi. This this podcast series is great, and just bringing more um, knowledge to people, understanding that finance is a fun career, financial planning, especially giving advice to people, helping them with their financial um, careers and their how to help them with their lives. It's really empowering for women, for minorities, for anyone to really be able to help themselves and their communities. So I just, you know, the more we can just preach from the, the mountaintops what a great job this is, I just try to do that wherever possible. Well, thank you, Kate. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. It's been lovely to chat to you. You too. Big thanks to Kate for her time and for chatting to me on the podcast today. If you enjoyed her story, then please do share this episode however you like with others that you think may enjoy it too. 
That's it for today. But as ever, if you've got any comments, suggestions or feedback, drop me a line because I love to hear from you. Please subscribe if you haven't already and feel free to leave a nice review on your favorite podcast site as it helps others to find us. More importantly, if you enjoyed it, spread the word as word of mouth is still the most powerful form of advertising. You can follow us on Twitter at Smashing Ceiling and on Instagram at Smashing The Ceiling and we'll hopefully see you next week.